0: all right colin how are you doing today good harry i'm glad to have you back i'm uh you know two is better than one i am
1: glad to be back you know i don't know we haven't published the episode that you did solo yet so we'll i haven't even listened to it so we'll see how it goes but uh, if it did uh, uh go well um hopefully i still have a slot and today we've got a great guest with amber so i'm gonna let you uh say hi and intro
0: her hi amber good to have you
2: awesome to be here i'm excited to see both of you harry and colin um, we've been keeping in touch on Twitter for a while, so it's nice to get the chance to chat live.
0: Yeah, definitely. Uh, honestly, we make most of our connections on Twitter, which is just crazy. Um, uh, Twitter I, is I a big part of this show, just yeah. by the way, Yeah, <laughs> I, I've been surprised that the creep on the amount of deals I've done just from DMS on Twitter is going up. I'm getting close to 50% and I don't wow. know if I should be concerned or, you know, excited by that, but, uh. Definitely the egalitarian platform for getting in touch with people. Definitely. Um, well, let us let me do a little quick bio on you and get everyone to know you. Um, so I'm excited about today. This is going to be super fun. Amber is an angel investor turned uh, solo general partner at the Council Fund. Um, she invests in founders that are transforming traditional industries. Uh, Fund One that she did is about a $5 million target to invest in pre-seed and seed stage companies across vertical SaaS, fintech, and healthcare uh, but before investing uh full-time amber obviously was angel investing but also was a longtime operator um a leader at Eli Lilly Apple snap cruise atmos I mean uh, just just like a great list of companies right there so it makes me feel a little bit self-conscious about my background but um <laughs> yeah we're excited to dig in and you know learn about your journey um and I think we're gonna start Harry you're gonna ask a few of, uh our, our few questions and then I want to get into the journey part because I'm sure it's going to be a fun one to learn about Definitely. And Amber, I think I just realized why Colin is
1: so excited to have you on. I think your journey mirrors exactly what Colin wants to do with his uh, journey. So you're a little further ahead. So I'm pretty sure that's, that's why awesome. he's so excited to chat. Um, so uh, would love to get to know you a little bit and your angel uh, investment and investing general background. So I'm gonna, I've got a few rapid fire questions if you're ready.
2: Yes, I'm ready. All right.
1: So how many angel investments have you made?
2: So I've made 30 angel investments and then 10, uh, actually 13, 10 uh, fund investments.
1: Okay, cool. Uh, how many angel investments have you made this year uh, Do you pl- and do you plan to make?
2: So once I launched my fund, I pivoted all um, investments to fund investments. So I've made three fund investments this year um, and I plan to make 10.
1: Cool. And what's your average check size for the fund these days?
2: I write 50K to 100K checks into those rounds.
1: Cool. What was it when you were doing your angel checks?
2: It was more like 5K. That was my typical check size. So I started smaller. All
1: right. Ooh, we're going to have to ask you about that because now you're writing yeah. big checks. Okay. Yes. What type of startups do you look for and at what stage?
2: So I look for startups at primarily pre-seed. So as I mentioned before, I, um, I invest at pre-seed and seed across vertical SaaS, tech and healthcare. However, right now, I'm really, really interested in vertical SaaS and trying mm-hmm. to stay as close to pre-seed as possible. And within vertical SaaS, I really love to nerd out and get excited about legacy industries so the less sexy, the better. And when I say mm. that, I'm talking about things like construction, logistics, supply chain, manufacturing. Um, Believe it or not, having worked at all these tech companies throughout my career, it might seem like I've always worked on um, yeah. software, but actually behind the scenes, I was always interfacing with these legacy industries. So first half of my career was consumer electronics. Mm. Second half was like transportation, construction um, at Cruise and Atmos. And so um, all very software centric, but I had to work with these kind of outdated industries. And I saw that a lot of them are still functioning on spreadsheets emails phone calls and sometimes even cash so um i see a lot of opportunity in them and their massive markets in their own right
1: got it yeah that's interesting i was going to say because a lot of the companies you worked out recently i don't know they seem pretty sexy to me cruise yeah. snap on the Apple. outside yes <laughs> <laughs> from the outside yeah. but i guess what you were working on specifically uh were the less sexy uh parts of the business
2: many times not always but many times
1: Okay. Um, interesting. So yeah, I really like that kind of idea about, you know, and I think with my background, I spent a lot of time with the gig economy and obviously there's a lot of attraction, you know, for Uber and Lyft drivers. And I think truck drivers were a good example of kind of the opposite, like less sexy, but there are 3 million truck drivers. And I always thought to myself like, wow, there's so much more investment happening with Uber and Lyft drivers Mm -hmm. in this other space. And they're kind of forgetting about these other sectors. Is there any one really good example that you think personifies as kind of like less sexy, the better, uh, type of company or product that you're looking for that you've uh, invested in?
2: Yes, definitely. Um, so one company that I just invested in is called Square Dash. They are um, building a SaaS platform and also some technology for roofers to be able to pay their contractors on time. Um, and this is an example where a lot of them are using multiple um, like SaaS products inside of their mm-hmm. businesses to run. So they might be using Gusto, Job Nimbus, um, other platforms. And really like they they want to be out on the ground um you know helping their teams get jobs done they don't want to be using like 10 different fragmented tools in order to um manage their teams and run their business and they're also still doing a lot of transactions and checks they're waiting for um insurance claims to clear it's a very messy long um operational process and so now they've kind of built their um product into like threefold um Mm -hmm. pieces so number one, they're able to ingest information very quickly to produce the documentation that insurance companies need to process claims, which reduces a portion of the process from like three weeks down to one day. Then they have a SaaS platform to help these roofers understand their cash flow, which contractors they still owe money to, how fast those insurance claims are actually clearing and when they can pay them on time. Um, And then they also have a cash advanced product, which is more in the fintech space um, through a separate debt vehicle. And they are um, helping these these roofing company owners actually pay their staff on time while they're waiting for those insurance claims to clear. So um, that makes a huge difference for them. It's a massive industry. It's also very very, um, cyclical versus or actually episodic versus um, cyclical. So even when the housing market is going up and Mm -hmm. down, people still need roofs over their head. So it's a massive opportunity. It's not the first area that you would have thought like, let's go build a fast fast product. Um, But once you start peeling back the onion, you're like, this is huge. Um, you know, people have hail and wind damage every single year, and then they need their roofs replaced every 10 years. Yeah. Um, and so there's a lot going on.
1: Very cool. Yeah, no, I like that yeah. example a lot. And I imagine, uh, construction in general is probably a lot mm-hmm. of uh, opportunity. Okay. Definitely. Also, I have, I have one question too. So for those of us that missed our last episode, can you define vertical SAS in case anyone, uh, doesn't <laughs> yeah. know what it means? <laughs> I-, I love <laughs> questions at like this
2: because- yeah. I love questions like this because anybody getting started with angel investing is hearing a ton of jargon right now and there's right. no stupid questions. So, um, and also l- software... luckily
1: I'm not afraid to ask the stupid questions. <laughs> Colin is a smart yeah. one on this podcast. I, uh, just here to learn.
2: No, there is no stupid question. So, um, SaaS software as a service, um, people are buying subscriptions to the, the software. And when I say vertical versus horizontal, I mean mm-hmm. that it's designed for a particular industry in a particular vertical. So, um, instead of saying we're going to build the HR platform for any company in the world to use um, or any, any company at enterprise level or any company at SMB level, that would be like horizontal because you're going across gotcha. all these different industries. But vertical is like I'm building the HR platform for um, logistics and or for freight orders even. Um, or I'm building like the, the procurement platform for, um, you know, maybe it's like supply chain um, mm-hmm. or like manufacturers in a certain area. Um, and so it allows you to be a little bit more focused on somebody's day to day when you're designing the product for them.
0: Got it. Very cool. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Nick went into ad nauseum detail about, uh I bet the, he did, uh, <laughs> which was great for, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I loved it. I, I was telling him I have like a similar thesis around marketplaces and I kind of view uh, SaaS and marketplaces as all kind of ending in the same spot. They're just mm-hmm. coming at it from different directions um, in a particular vertical, like one is like, Hey, we'll monetize the transaction and add value that way for existing businesses. One is saying, Hey, let's build the tooling, maybe a system of record, something that embeds that ultimately, uh, enables huge amount of distribution to maybe have a marketplace or whatever it may be. They're all kind of end in the same spot. And it just depends on the industry. If you want to embed first, uh, like if that's the most advantageous way to go, solve a problem with software and give them something to do something with, or you help on the transaction side because they need demand or they need liquidity. Um, so anyway, I love the I, I love it too. I've become, uh, now that I've learned more about vertical SaaS, I'm uh, becoming a fan quickly. Uh, awesome. but I'd love to like jump into your journey. Um, so we know you're an operator doing all kinds of crazy things at these companies and it wasn't always super sexy. It sounds like, um, but what got you into angel investing? Well, you know, maybe talk us through the first one. Like, did somebody call you up and just write a check? Tell us more.
2: Yeah. Great question, because I know a lot of people where that's how they got started. You know, they didn't realize they were making an angel investment and somebody asked them for one and they ended up doing it once and they're like, I want to keep doing that. Um, my, my journey in was very different than that. I think um, I grew up, was raised by an entrepreneur of a small business. So my dad um, was an artist turned graphic designer, turned business owner for a digital ad agency in the late 90s and early 2000s. And so around my dinner table growing up, we were always talking about new partners Um, logos, brand designs, etc. And so I really got addicted to the building journey, but I also saw a lot of the ups and downs of the entrepreneurial journey, watched him navigate the 2008 recession and own that business for 15 years. And so um, it all, it wasn't all like rainbows and butterflies. And so he really encouraged me like um, go a less risky path, study engineering, join a fortune 500 company, like get a 401k, max it out, stay there for life. Um, I tried to do that and it just, it didn't feel right to me. I learned a lot at those companies, but I think that's why you'll see throughout my career, I went smaller and smaller and smaller all the way down the seed stage from there. Um, and, but I had never really thought or really heard much about this venture scalable model. So I grew up in the Midwest and ended up moving out here for my job with Apple. And that was when just by physically being in San Francisco, I started hearing all about these startups around me, all these entrepreneurs around me. And I learned about this new model where people were actually, giving these entrepreneurs money to go build a software product that they could scale to millions of users and had multiple different distribution opportunities with. And I thought, I want to be part of that someday. That sounds like a really exciting place to be. And it was kind of the first time the light bulb went off to me, like, maybe I do want to get back to my entrepreneurial roots. And that's why, I, you know, I, I constantly want to join a smaller company. And so um, but the issue then was that I couldn't afford it. I was earlier on in my career. And so I just started kind of studying venture capital and startups and reading TechCrunch articles, listening to podcasts. Um, and so and I also started saving up because I knew I didn't want to jump over into B.C. in an associate role and work my way up the ladder because I was having fun in my operating career. And so I decided, you know, I want to keep keep working, gain skills, build up my own um, net worth and then someday start angel investing. And so um I was very methodical about it. Um, I waited until I'd gone through a high growth period at Apple, the IPO at Snap. And then I had made enough money that I wasn't like, you know, independently wealthy and could leave my job and never work again. But I had made enough money that um, I could carve off a piece of my net worth and start investing that into startups. And so I didn't know where I was gonna start, but I carved off, um, I think around 50K at that time. And I told myself, you know, I'm not going to get my MBA. And so instead I'm gonna put that money into startups and learn in a different way. Um, And I decided to invest in 30 companies over three years to see, A, am I any good at this? B, do I like it and what I want to do it full time? Um, And then the rest, uh, we can get into what happened next. Um, But that was really kind of like how, that was why I got started. Um, And then how I got started was um, really like, I I started just kind of looking around, asking questions, trying to find people that I could invest in because I literally had no deal flow to start. Um, I didn't know many founders because I had been working at bigger companies. And um, and so I actually started going to founder pitch events or things that I could find online and then chatting with the founders afterward and just telling them, hey, I, I'm trying to start angel investing and um, looking for other investors. And um, one founder was really, really nice to me. And she was like, you know what? I know some other women that are also operators like you, and they're having the same issue right now. They want to start investing outside of their full-time job. And, they, um, and they're looking for like a community to do it with and to build. And so ended up getting coffee with one of them, Courtney Bui Lipkin, who at that point was at first round. And then um, Annabelle lippincott Pasoy, who was at previously at, at Open Door and then working at um, a co- company called Assembly in, the San, in San Francisco. Um, and together, I came together with them and about 10 other members. And we started meeting every single month and hosting founder pitches back to back because we all kind of had like our own little pockets of deal flow. Um, we all knew somebody from our job that was spinning out to form a company or somebody from back in college that was starting a company. And so we brought those deals together, started considering them together and then sharing our expertise, working at different companies and different functions. Um, and then while I was kind of getting my footing by doing that, I was also investing through a syndicate, um, just to kind of get some reps in and learn certain parts of the process, even though I wouldn't be able to learn the whole process through doing that.
1: Awesome. (laughs) That's great info. I love how methodical you were. You know, I think even even in your, you know, when we asked you our fire round, you mentioned you made 30 angel investments. And then here you said, okay, first year I took 50K. I want to do 10 checks a year. And I'm kind of doing the math in my head. I imagine you did 10 the first year, 10 the second, and 10 the third is what I'm guessing to get to that 30 number. So I think that's pretty cool, um, you know, seeing this approach, because I think a lot of the folks we've been interviewing, you know, they kind of fell into it, or they Mm -hmm. discovered it, or they knew someone that was raising, or this guy, this, you know, person was amazing and starting a new company. And, you know, I like that, you know, you started from a place too where, you know, like you said, you had no deal flow, and you kind of went out and got it yourself, you know, like I haven't, I love the like, sort of founder pitch event. And it seems like just sort of organically made a lot of connections and went from there, right?
2: Yep, absolutely. Um, I think you just have to start asking around and putting the word out there that you're Mm -hmm. looking to start investing. Um, Also, be careful what you ask for, because if you start putting (laughs) on your LinkedIn profile and stuff, you're going to get like, you know, 20 messages a week from people that want investment. And so when you're first getting started, um, that might be a lot. But I think looking for really high signal deal flow and thinking about who's in my network that I could team up with um, that would potentially be additive and what can I add as well?
1: So LinkedIn, you know, the sort of spam, you put angel investor on your profile on LinkedIn, and you start getting all the inbound spam, like, Mm -hmm. how do you, you know, recommend people differentiate from like the high signal sort of potential founders and the ones where it's just like some, you know, I don't know, I I don't cold pitch on LinkedIn that, you know, is obviously never going to go anywhere. But like, how do you think about that high signal? And what do you look for? What do you recommend?
2: Yeah. So to be clear, I consider both. So I consider cold outreach and Mm -hmm. um, and warm referrals. That said, I have a network now that group of 10 women back in like 2019, early 2019, has now become over 80 members. We all all of them are working at companies like Square and Slack and Airbnb and Lyft um, in different roles. And um, and so we have really high signal deal flow. And but I think of that as one of our channels. Um, yeah. And then I also have a lot of high signal deal flow now that people from my past uh, jobs at Snap and Cruise and Atmos yeah. um, know that I'm angel investing. Mm-hmm. I hear from them first when they're launching a company, but I still do allow people to come and cold pitch their companies. Um, I cannot keep track of all the LinkedIn DMs and the Twitter <laughs> DMs. And so periodically I'll post on Twitter and just say, hey, if you're trying to pitch me, make sure you go to our form on our website. Yeah. Um, but I, I have a really tiny team and we every single Monday go through every single deal um, whether it's been a warm referral or a cold outreach on our website. Um, and it does get, you know, it, the bar is higher for a cold outreach to, um, to get an investment because you like automatically we have to go an extra step in diligence because we don't know anybody that has a reference check on you. Um, and so that's where it has to be worth it. There has to be a really awesome opportunity there. Um, and maybe on paper that, um entrepreneur has great experience that's really relevant to what they're building, and that that kind of um tips me off I should talk to this person like they're building in a massive market, they're building something unique that's differentiated, differentiated from others that I've seen in the space um and then that entrepreneur has some sort of unique insight likely, and so if they might be the right person to build this business and then i'll I'll take a call with them and um and try to decide from there if those things are truly true.
1: Very cool. And you sort of teased at some of the work that you're doing with the fund. Before we get there, I have one last question for you on your sort of angel investing journey. Were there any challenges? Like what was the biggest challenge or downside uh, of the angel route? Um, Because obviously you did kind of end up going and doing a fund. And I'm not sure if, you know, you sort of saw that opportunity as bigger and better, or there was some aspects that you didn't like about angel. So feel free to uh, share about that part.
2: Yeah. So there are things that I loved about being an angel. Um, Number one, you're kind of like a free agent. If you want to take a high risk, like make a high risk decision on something and you don't want to do a lot of diligence and you're just like, I met this person. I think they're awesome. I don't have a lot of time this week. And I write, I want to write a quick check into it um, just to see where it goes that you can do as an angel, Um, as a GP leading a fund with like 40 plus LPs that have backed me. um, I have, you know, the responsibility to make sure that I'm doing proper due diligence on every deal Um, and, and that's fine. I'm fine with that. I knew I was going to have to do that going into it. Um, but it's a different beast. And then I think the other thing that's not glamorous about being a fund manager, which a lot of people don't realize is there's a huge like back office aspect to it. And so it's not just like, oh, every day I have this capital Mm -hmm. that, um, Mm -hmm. I can deploy into as many startups as I want. This is so great. Um, that is the best part of the job, but there's all these other pieces. Um, you know, you have to have a really crisp portfolio construction and constantly be considering like, is this you know, can I build a 10 X fund with this one company based on this valuation and the future valuation? I think it could be worth someday. Um, and be like a lot more analytical with those decisions. And then, um, the back office stuff is, you know, you're managing a fund admin platform. You're trying to manage legal fees and keep them very low with a small first time fund. Um, and so you're taking on a lot of the, like upfront work yourself and just giving your lawyer, like the last question on any, any changes you're trying to make. Um, you know, you're managing multiple business entities just for one fund. Um, so there's a lot going on behind the scenes, um, writing quarterly updates. Um, and so you have to be ready for that operational part of being a fund manager, too. But to me, the main um, value add was like, I didn't have unlimited capital to just keep going for the rest of my mm-hmm. life as an angel investor. Um, and so being able to take outside capital and find people that were mission aligned with me and believe in the thesis and believe in my track record leading into this fund Um you know, that allows me to have more capital to deploy in these startups and um, and even take up more ownership in these startups that I'm seeing. Like I was writing really small checks into them because I'm limited by my own capital, but I knew I could be writing lar- larger checks into them um, and wanted to be able to do that. And so I'm pleased today that I have a group of LPs that's very easy to work with, and um, I feel lucky to have each one of them. But yes, it's, a, it's running a whole business. It's not just investing in startups.
0: Got it. Um in terms of the the fund you know I, it was actually super useful i like you know people talk about fund construction and uh yeah. I, I hear it and i'm like I, I think i know what that means like you know you probably want a good composition so you can have a great outcome right yeah. um and so uh, maybe you can go into like just a little bit of detail cuz uh, i'm i'm pulling the hairy here hair. i'm asking the questions about things i don't understand but like what like what are kind of the principles of like portfolio construction when you talk about it i know you mentioned you know can this company get to that valuation? I understand that part, but like, does it also mean spreading risk across different verticals? Like what, what does that like portfolio construction look like?
2: Yep. Yeah. So it's different for everyone. Everybody kind of thinks about what, what is their super skill and how is that going to feed into my portfolio construction? How am I going to win and have the best possible return with this fund? Um, And so there are different flavors of it. Um, My flavor, well, first I'll tell you the, the factors that you should consider. So number one, you wanna consider what's my follow-on strategy. Am I just investing in these companies once and trying to get as much ownership as possible and then riding out dilution for the rest of time? Or am I going to reserve a portion of this fund for follow-on investments in the companies that are hitting it out of the park and write maybe a smaller check in initially, and then just keep doubling down every single time they're raising a follow-on round if I and if they're meeting the goals and I believe in them and I still think that they're a high, high um, impact team at that point. Um, And then the other thing you should think about is how many companies do i want to fund with this fund and for me i thought about two different things number one how many can i invest in each year with my own bandwidth and wanting to perform diligence on each one and then also wanting to be able to support each one each one after i invest in them um and then the other thing i thought about with this was how many vintages um how actually i guess there's three things how many companies do i want lps to be exposed to because if i'm only investing in five companies and one out of 10 companies is like the rule of thumb in terms of yeah. what could actually return a fund five companies probably not enough um and so i wanted to invest in 30 companies because then we have three chances if one out of 10 is going to be a massive winner that buy, buys back the entire fund and more um and so i wanted them to have access to 30 companies and then the third thing is i wanted them to ask have access to three different vintages in terms of the years that we're investing first checks into those companies mm-hmm. so if you think about it every single year there's some sort of theme and i'm not somebody that pivots to the new theme every year but um that theme affects the macro uh like ecosystem that these companies are launching out of um and so you know back in the early days of covid um the theme may have been tele- telehealth because like everybody's trying to move everything online um and then and maybe like future of work because everybody's moving to remote um and then it was like the crypto web 3 craze and Everybody outside of Crypto and Web3 was having trouble raising. Everybody inside of it was able to raise very quickly. Um, And then the next year, well, well, this year, basically, it's been AI, um, which is, you know, you could view it as a platform that a lot of things are going to launch out of, or you could view it as a feature that everything should include moving forward. And so, um, so yeah, there's, you know, every year there's something going on. And also just in the macro economy, too, you know, in 2021, it was a much easier time to raise money. Um, 2022, not so easy at all. Um, 2023, we've kind of reset to the new normal and anybody going into founding a company now knows what they're getting into, um, is super gritty and have to be working on something important that they care about to even be doing this right now. Um, and so I love that LPs that have invested in my fund are getting exposure to like late 2021, all of 2022, and then 2023 and a little bit of 2024. Um, cause they started like toward the end of one year. Um, so those are the things I think about. Um, Bandwidth, which I mentioned earlier, is a huge part of it because um, I could have said, you know, I want to have more shots on goal and I want to invest in 50 to 100 companies. um, And I want to invest over one year in in like 50 to 100 companies so that I can raise my fund to and have a larger fund and more resources at play, um, which I have seen a lot of people do. And that's a strategy. But for me, I wanted to make sure that I just have the time um, to spend with each entrepreneur to get to know them to the point where I can develop conviction and invest in them. And then also to support them after the check. So it's not just like I'm writing a check and disappearing every time they need something.
1: Yeah, I I like that explanation. I think when I was going through the deck for your fund, I think uh, you shared some good screenshots of texts from founders and it seems like you're quite hands-on and I think it lends itself well to your personality and sort of, uh, you know, kind of also your goals. So I think it's kind of, uh, again, I love how methodical you are in thinking about the fund construction and sort of also, you know, I think what's important for people is like, you know, what fits your personality? You know, not like I've talked to some people who are like, I love writing checks and help them quickly. And then I don't want to hear from them in the future. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's like kind of understanding you don't have to do what someone else is doing, just like understand your personality. Now, one thing that I think is pretty different, um, obviously from going angel investing to a fund, as you mentioned, LPs a couple times now. And so you've got, uh, I believe a target, is it 5 million that you've raised or you're targeting 5 million for the fund?
2: Yeah. Targeting 5 million, I've raised about half of it, a little over half.
1: So um,
2: yeah, 40 LPs.
1: Awesome. So, uh, how has that gone so far? And, like, what's the sort of recommendation you would make for people that are thinking from going from the angel path to then going and doing a fund? Is, you know, kind of raising from LPs, is that like the hardest part to think about or, you know, sort of build that network there and then kind of make the jump? Cause it seems to me like that's the part that stands out to me. Cause obviously, as an angel, yeah. like you said, you can just write your own money. You don't have to, you know, uh, worry too much right. or you can. And then now you have all these LPs who you're investing their money.
2: Yeah. Uh fundraising is definitely the hardest part of the job. Um, and so mm-hmm. that's something to definitely be aware of. If you're thinking about raising your fund, it's a whole new work stream. Um, and it's a little different than fundraising for a startup where startups are like, you know, I'm raising my seed round, I'm going to focus mm-hmm. on it this month, and then I'm going to get back to building. Um, with a first time fund, I think the average fund, actually, I saw this stat from First Republic a little while ago, the average second time fund takes 18 months to raise. Um and so imagine I haven't seen the actual stat on the first time fund <laughs> but I know longer, a lot right? <laughs> of fund managers. Yeah, I know a lot of fund managers that have been at it for 2 years and so oh. um so it is it's like a a longer like slower burn I would say with fundraising. Um and you kind of start with your your closest network. Like these are the people I know. I started with my angel community that I built for the past like 4 years. They knew me, they knew my style. They were much easier to convert um than people that have never met me before. Um, mm-hmm. And then those lead to introductions, which lead to introductions. Um, and the the sphere of people that you're targeting gets much wider. Um, mm-hmm. And then there are people that you you just don't know anybody that knows them. Um, and so you have to find people that know them and build you know credibility with them in order to build credibility with some larger institution. Um, and with a first-time fund, you're also limited by the type of people that will invest in you. So um, big like pension funds, endowments that write multimillion dollar checks are probably not going to invest in a first time fund. Um, they're a little bit more risk averse and they consider everything to be emerging unless it's like your fund for. Um, mm-hmm. And so <laughs> if you think about it, like every fund, you're actually kind of you're changing your LP construction a little bit as well, um, because you're getting closer and closer to that, like highly institutional group of LPs, which isn't going to invest in you. Maybe some of them will invest earlier on, mm-hmm. but it definitely will be hard to get a lot with them super early on. And so um, you're building those relationships over a long period of time. So even with, even outside of that, like first fundraise for fund one, as soon as you're done raising it, you're already thinking like, okay, now how yeah. am I going to prepare for the next gauntlet? Um, which is like, like you just got out of that one. And then it's like, um, there's going to be another one coming that I need to start like warming up relationships for in like three months. So, yeah, and I had somebody, luckily somebody told me this at the start of my journey, they were like, just be prepared to be like fundraising for five to seven years because it doesn't get easier (laughs) until you're in like fund four or five, because finally you start seeing the results from fund one. Um, because it it also is tough because you don't see like key KPIs for so many years, um, after you launch a fund. So, Yeah, so it's definitely it's a beef. um, But, you know, I do feel humbled and happy that I've had the chance to do it because, um, you know, for many years, I've been on the other side of the table only, um, which is, you know, seeing somebody fundraise and share their pitch, pitch deck with me. And now I've been in their shoes, so to speak, you know, raising from other people and so able to be a little bit more empathetic for what they're going through
1: for sure. And so, uh, you know, when it comes to the LP base for your fund so far, it sounds like you started with your close network, your angel group. Uh have you had most success there? Like I'm trying to I I'm an LP in a few funds and I always see, you know, oh, if you know anyone that can write a 250k check or 500k or more, let me know. And I'm like, I don't know anyone that can write a 500k check like how yeah. do you find those people in the next yes. level. Um how are you doing it uh sort of, you know, how's it gone for you personally so far and then how how do you kind of recommend people go about that?
2: Yeah, it's, it's definitely, um, it's difficult. So um, similar to to what you just described, like most of my um, LPs that I had joined early on were writing smaller checks into the fund, Mm. maybe 50K, um, 25K here and there. Um, And um, similarly, like if I were to ask many of them, if they know somebody that can write a 250K to 500K check, they'd be like, no, but I can introduce you to somebody else that can write a 50K check like I did. Um, And so for a while, you know, you just keep building momentum with that eventually you hit somebody that does actually know like one high net worth individual that is looking has so much capital they're looking to deploy larger checks into um entities such as yours and they believe in emerging managers um and the spaces you're investing in um and that's that's huge and there are there are a lot of um gps at funds larger funds that invest in um emerging fund managers but even they are doing it individually. So they might Got be it. more like writing a 50K check, but they know like larger LPs mm, so yeah, um, and they can sometimes one. introduce you to those larger LPs after they've made their investment. Um, and then there are also funds like like big venture firms that have fund of funds programs like Bain Capital Ventures has invested in the council fund um, and they invest in a number of emerging managers that they think are strong. And for them, it's a source of deal flow. Um, yeah. And so... You know, they've got like boots on the ground with all these different emerging fund managers who are super hungry to find the best deals and drive yeah. the best returns. And mm-hmm. so that's part of their thesis. Um, and there are all other venture firms that have that sort of strategy. And then once you get them on board, it's credibility to then, if you're talking to a family office or somebody who's outside of the tech, like, um, ecosystem, um, they see a name they recognize and it's like, Oh, Bain Capital Ventures is backing you. That must mean yeah. that this is legitimate. So, um, it's long. Honestly, it's a function of time and the time that you put in. It's like, it's not just a numbers game it's almost like the time to get to know different groups of people and develop yeah. trust with them so that they will open up more doors for you yeah
0: I it's funny um I've had a couple friends start funds <clears throat> and um uh one of them was raising a 20 million dollar fund uh the Earl gray capital uh folks they well, um and uh I was like oh I know an I know an LP uh that or fund to fund that could be an LP like let me um email them and see if they'll take you know Interested in talking with you, and because they, they were an investor in outdoorsy, um, and so I emailed them, and they were like, "Yeah, we can. Uh, we typically write a hundred million dollar check. Is that going to fit with what they're raising?" Right? And I was uh, like, "Well, they're raising like, a twenty exactly. million dollar fund, so uh, yeah. that's going to be a little overkill." Um, yeah. And uh, anyway, it just was like one of these things. I was like, "This is a whole different world." Like I just, oh yeah, this whole fund to fund world. Uh, those are big checks, and you know they're mostly representing endowments and things like that. So, yep, um, exactly. Well, let's talk about the the council um and not the fun but the you know the actual like angel yeah the the fun people you know the the people that want to get their hands dirty did you say the fun people or the fund people i mean probably both uh, but (laughs) i uh i don't know i love the angels personally hence why we're here but um yeah i want to to learn a little bit more like how how does that work do they co-invest alongside share some details
2: yeah. So they, co- they co-invest they co alongside, I would think of as, as kind of a Venn diagram. So the fund has a very like specific investment thesis where we're going after these um, early stage deals that are in legacy industries, all software focused. Um, the angel group, every single angel has their own investment thesis and their own pocket of deal flow. And so we don't only limit them to the deals that we're considering um, for the fund. Like sometimes I'm sharing deals with them where I'm saying the fund is investing in this and we have extra allocation and the founder is you know interested in adding strategic angels onto their cap table. Um, do you want to take a look? Other times they are um they're you know seeing a deal in their network. It might be a fun a fit for the fund. It might not. Um, but if it's a strong deal, we'll allow them to share it through our platforms with other members. Um, and the operation, like what it looks like is basically um, members join us, they go through an onboarding where we talk about founder etiquette, we talk about um you know all the different systems we use and how to engage. And then um they basically every week or two they get a newsletter in their email that has the top two to three deals that we're seeing, um whether it's from member referrals, um, my background, co-investors that I've been working with for years, or um like pulled outreach. We share, you know, top two or three between all those different channels with members. Um, and then the following Tuesday we actually meet up and we discuss them back to back. So anybody who can join at 12 p.m. Pacific, who's a member of the council, joins and we go through. Um, And basically there we use our expertise. Everybody has their own expertise because we've got leaders in like legal, marketing, engineering, et cetera. Um, And uh, they will, you know, highlight things that we should be considering about particular deals. Um, You know, if we have a supply chain expert in there, they might be like, you know, I I would be worried about this one angle of their business. You might want to double check that or ask this question if you're meeting with this founder. Um, So everybody's focused on helping each other. Um, identifying questions we should be asking, identifying potential risks that we should be looking into, and even offering up connections. We've had um, angels offer up to me and other angels, like, hey, if you get really serious about this deal, I know um, another VC that focuses only on this exact space and would have a lot of perspective to add, and so I can make an intro. Um, And so it's really helpful for that. And then we also do a bunch of um, virtual and IRL events where we bring our angel group together. Sometimes we invite founders to join those sessions. Sometimes we bring in experts externally um, to talk about different things. Like maybe we'll have a FinTech expert or we'll have a, um, uh, like, a um, uh, like an investing expert, like a GP at a larger fund, something like that um, to go through specific topics with them. So that's kind of the membership, like offering in the council. And then what's true about all of our members, even though our fund invests in everyone and our LPs are extremely diverse men, women, people of all backgrounds, the angel community specifically is all female. And the reason we did that was because we I've been on so many cap tables where I'm the only woman on the cap table. And I've had men and women coming to me saying, can you please introduce me to other women angels? Because um, like, this cap table is like really, really a mess in terms of diversity. <laughs> and so, um, but that said, like, none of these women want to be on a cap table just because they're women. And so right. we want to be known as a community that's full of strategic operators that every single person, if you added them to your cap table, would be value add. And so- Um, We want founders to think of us as somewhere where like you might get a check from the fund, I have operating experience and can help you. Um, Or you might get a check from one of our angel investors or multiple angel investors where you might meet like a go to -to market expert or somebody who led product market um, fit, you know, at a different company or um, helped think through a product led growth strategy at a a SaaS company like Slack. Um, And so... For founders, that's really important to have people they can call up and we want to always be known as like that sort of um, like caliber of angel group. So that's the criteria to join the councils. Like we want you to be a serious operator and you also have to be a woman.
0: And just to clarify, is it a syndicate or is it just people can invest individually? How does that work? Check size?
2: Yeah, Currently, people can invest individually unless it's a deal that the fund has previously invested in and we're opening up a syndicate. Usually we give our LPs first look at deals. And then if there's extra allocation, we would open it up to the angel group. Um, and then uh, members can also lead SPVs through the council. So if somebody came into the council and they're like, I you know my co-workers leaving, founding a company. I'm already decided to invest in this company. I have a lot of conviction and I want to lead this deal through the council. We would position it to members as an SPV deal and do a carry share with them. And so they can actually earn, um, you know, carry on the work that they're putting into the deal as well.
0: Yeah. And you might be asking what, I mean, what platforms are you picking to run the fund and the SPV on? Yeah. I,
2: I, so for the fund, I've been with Carta since day one. Um, for SPVs, we've been playing around with a couple of different um, types of platforms. So I've used AngelList for some of our early um, syndicate deals. And then we're trying out Sidecar right now, which um, so far we like. So, yeah.
0: Nice. I think that's like top of mind for a lot of uh, angels out there is like what to use. Also, I think your failure was also. Yeah, I know. I like I like
1: Sidecar, especially too. Colin knows I'm not. ai like like to syndicate deals. I just don't like all the back and forth and, you know, kind of getting the money in. That is the worst part. You know, end up like I think (laughs) it's really I think people like really. even for me, like, I think I have a decent network, but it's like, I think people like kind of oversell how easy it is. Oh, just syndicate a mm-hmm. deal. And it's like, wow, getting yeah. the allocation and getting the money And sidecar has it's like 4,500 in fees. Yeah. So it's like at least reasonable, you know, like to, yeah. to raise 50,000 and then have $8,000 in angel list mm-hmm. fees. It's like, all right, well, there goes most of the
0: investment, Yeah, you know? Yeah. So I like that. Exactly. Yep. I love it personally. I don't know why. Maybe I just like herding cats, but,
2: um, <laughs> good for you. Yeah.
0: Heart, i think i would like worker. it
2: more i think i would like it more if i wasn't already running an angel community with like a separate oh, yeah. operation it's like adding something else on where it's like okay i have a fund which is my number one priority and then angel network and then if i also layer on SPVs for every single deal we're sharing with them um it's going to get gnarly and then um and also you know i didn't launch the angel community specifically to be monetizing it necessarily um we do have membership fees but it's basically to offer a great experience to members um and so for me it's more important to see these women getting onto cap tables and sometimes having their name directly on cap tables is actually important to them too. So um so yeah, it's something I'm supportive of.
0: Nice. All right. It's time for the trending Twitter threads. Probably the most oh, yeah. like the people's favorite uh segment both guests and listeners and Harry and I. Um but let's dive in. Harry will show a, a visual of it, uh but I'll read it. Um Let's start with, uh, start with Matt. All right. We're doing Matt. All right. So I'll read it out loud, Amber, and then we want your hot take. Uh, if that's good with you. So if you're an angel looking for alpha by investing in YC companies at demo day, you missed the boat by a mile and are attempting to play in a league that's well beyond your financial capacity to compete effectively as an angel, your job is to invest before they get into YC. Now I get it. We all want to be early. Um, but also knowing what's going to get into YC seems a little like hard to know and what to do. So I don't know. I'm interested on your take here. There's a couple themes, you know, um, but yeah, what do you think?
2: I absolutely love this question because there are so many takes on this topic. Um, <laughs> so number one, absolutely the valuations are astronomical at demo day yes. um, for Y Combinator. And I have actually passed on deals before because I didn't think it was worth it at that stage. Um, I've, you know, I've seen multiple, even in this last batch, multiple companies that otherwise would have been considered pre-seed because they were pre-product or pre-revenue, um, but they were raising like top seed valuations. And so for me, it is important personally to get in really early because I have a pre-seed strategy with my fund. Um, and that means I'm usually investing in sub 10 million valuations and most of them cap out at like 8 million post. Um, and so um, it makes a magnitude of difference in the end. Um, If you're investing in like uh, like a 5 million cap company versus a $25 million cap company, um, that's a huge difference in your markup at like series A, series B, IPO. And so um, for me with a fund and trying to like provide a portfolio return on the fund um, versus on that individual startup, I want it to be um, a lot larger than a 5x return or 10x return even. I want to know that it could be 100x plus. Um, And so... Sometimes like for me, it is too late by the end of demo day. That said, um, it's not a blanket rule that I apply to everything. So if I met a founder that was in NYC and they had a crazy valuation, uh, maybe like 25 million post for something that was still pre-product or pre-revenue, but I had a really high signal on that founder and they were operating in an extremely large market and they had a really unique like distribution strategy and a way to get in quickly. Um, You know, I might consider something like that, but I have to believe that it's going to be like um, able to return the fund and like a 10x return. And even if I was an angel, like I'd be with my like previous uh, portfolio, I'd be thinking, like, could this return a 10x portfolio on all the other like 29 investments that I've made? Um, So you just have to think through what's right for you. Um, It is hard to determine who's going to get into YC. And so I think it comes down to if you feel comfortable having conviction at that stage. And I don't think everybody should be investing at PreSEED. I think it definitely takes insider knowledge um, to be able to invest in pre seed. But I think if if you know both of you are operators and there are probably operators listening to this podcast, um, I think that operators really do have a unique um, way in because they've been on the inside, they know what a successful company looks like. Um, they also know what a successful founder and leadership team looks like. Um, they may actually know some of these people. And if you know somebody that's a really high signal, um, if you know, they're super capable and they're like top performer you used to work with, um, that could make something worth it. So, um, I don't have a blanket rule yes or no, but I would say like 80% of the time it's a no for me at the end of Y Combinator, unless it's like a super massive opportunity. Um, and not just because of who else is investing, but because of like the hard numbers that could actually be true about this company.
0: I like that. Uh. I find that really helpful. I, you know, it's just like the dilution that comes, even if you invest early on a YC company, mm-hmm. it's just nuts. So I just don't, yeah. I mean, unless they're really gonna hit, right, I just don't understand how you even make money. Um, mm-hmm. Like I, it, it's a good thing, but it's also like a bad thing. I don't know, like yeah. you wanna invest in companies, pre-seed early, then maintain a good ownership percentage, like not by having to do huge pro rata, right? You wanna right. maintain it by the company being efficient about how they raise in the future. So yeah. it's an interesting angle I haven't thought a lot about in terms of my investments. Like, is this a founder that's going to just like go to funding to be their go-to way to grow, right? Right. Or yeah. are they going to build a business from the fundamentals that grows? Uh-huh. Yeah,
2: definitely. I will say one of the advantages of Y Combinator is also the network that you build. So you're getting capital in the door, both from Y Combinator and then from people that invest at demo day. Um and so there are founders in there that for sure are playing that game of like I'm just trying to get to series A and then I'm just trying to get to series B and I just want to always be raising at huge valuations. Um but there are also founders in there that are very methodical and they're very um like you know intentional about the investors they take on, intentional about the valuations. Obviously they all want the high valuations. Um but Um, but yeah, I think some of them are doing it for the network too. And even like really awesome operators are like, you know, I just don't know a lot of people in VC, and I want to make this quick and painless. My first round out of the gate, I want it to be like really successful. So I understand why they do it and I understand why it's, um, value add for them. And I think it also depends on your check size as an angel too. Like if you're writing fairly large checks into these rounds, like a hundred K check, um, you might be able to get more runway out of that if you invested previous to YC, but if you're investing smaller checks, um, you that dilution um is going to have like a bigger impact potentially on you over time and so um and any fees if you're investing through like syndicates and stuff like that you have to take into account so um so i think it really depends but um it's a trade-off because you get more traction um the more data you have but then you get a better price with less traction so um you never know both can work
1: Got it. Cool. Well, uh, last trending th- thread I will uh, pull up on the screen right now. And it's from the other Harry uh, in VC, much more famous mm. Harry, uh, Harry Stebbings. He says, when you think you've missed a true breakout company when investing, the worst thing to do, which everyone does, is try to find the next original that you missed. Don't do this. 90- 99% of the time, gains accrue to the original, swallow pride and invest at high price. Amber, what do you think?
2: So he's saying kind of try to find the next uh, like competitor of that company. Do you think that's what he means by your next original or just any other original company
0: I, I think he's saying just because you missed it you need to like going after the other ones probably won't don't be do a that. strategy <laughs> yeah yeah go and invest in <laughs> he's that. like so if you missed no uber
1: one. don't invest in the yeah. next competitor because you missed uber that, i think okay, is what yeah. he's saying and
2: yeah um so on this one he's I, british so um, we got to
1: translate right <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So
2: yeah, in the Uber Lyft scenario, um, the people that invested in Lyft still did pretty well. Like, obviously, now, like Lyft and Uber are both having your issues in the public markets. But if yeah. you were able to sell via secondary or at IPO, um, you probably did pretty well, whether you invested in the first one or the second one. That said, that's an extremely risky bet to make early on, um, if you already see a company that's taking off like Uber. And so um, if you have the chance to invest after that at a slightly higher valuation and you turned your back on it before, I would say, consider it. Um, if it still makes sense with your strategy and your portfolio construction, um, but otherwise also be okay. Like leaving it behind, there will be like companies in your portfolio that you missed that were really good and they would have been yeah. awesome. Um, so I think that's okay. Like I have an anti portfolio that would have been, <laughs> there's one company I always think about. I'm like, why didn't I invest in that company? What's the but, company? um, alloy, um, by Sarah Dew, she um, pitched the council at her pre-seed like three years ago, um, and or maybe four years ago. I don't know, it was like early pandemic, I think. Um, and I, I knew at that point, I was like, this person is special, this company is awesome. Um, this is gonna take off. But I was feeling capital constrained that month. I had just yeah. invested in two other companies, um, which ended up being uh, great markups in the portfolio. But I was like, I don't feel like I can write another 5K check this month and maybe I'm getting too crazy. So let me just scale back. Um, It was all mental and it had nothing to do with her or the company. Um, And then like, of course, the company goes on to be super successful, ends up raising their next round from Andreessen Horowitz and um, just did really well. So um, and she's still doing well today. We still keep in touch. But um, that and I tell her all the time, I'm like, this one is my biggest regret. So
0: um, yeah. I guess to Harry's point, what should you have just eaten your pride and invested at a higher valuation? Like would.
2: I may. Yeah. Potentially. Yes. I think I didn't realize it until it was too late. So like, I knew that this one just got away from me as it was happening. Um, but I didn't feel comfortable like that particular month, that particular quarter I was like slowing down and like, okay, um, I want to just like see what I've learned in the last 10 investments before I keep investing at this speed. And then it turns out that was actually like a really special quarter. And like every single company that I invested in that quarter was actually um, amazing. And so that also taught me a lesson too. Like sometimes there are just these like particular quarters of the year or particular years where like everything is golden. Um, and that doesn't mean there's something wrong.
1: So, yeah, but I didn't, unfortunately you that can't have, yeah, sometimes like it's like those it. hot deals, yeah. right. They come, you know, all at once or, you know, they're yeah. not like perfectly evenly exactly. spaced out. I know I had a deal yeah. come up while I was on vacation last week. And even I was like, all right, gotta do a little extra work, even though I really yeah. didn't want to, but it was like something yeah. I was like, oh, this is good, too good to pass up. So, yes. uh, really cool. Great insights. Uh, Amber, I love, uh, all of, uh, everything that you shared, uh, the methodical approach and sort of the, uh. The journey that you've taken from operator to angel, and now running a fund and uh, the group with the council. So, if folks want to learn more about what you're up to, should they follow you on Twitter? It sounds like uh, I don't know if you're taking applications for the council, but feel free to uh, let us know where we can find you, and we'll also include all those links in the show notes too.
2: Yeah, awesome. Yeah, I would love if anybody listening, if you want to keep in touch with me and what I'm building, um, you can follow me at Amber Illig on Twitter. It's just A M B E R I L L I G. Add me on LinkedIn. Um, and then if you're interested in joining the angel community, we have our application on our website. If you're interested in pitching the council of the founder, we have a, an intake form on our website and I kind of went over our process earlier. So you will actually hear something from us. Um, and then, um, if you're interested in becoming an LP in the fund, I'm still raising the next tranche. Um, and that's coming together pretty quickly. So we'd love to have anybody on board that's interested.
1: Awesome. Cool. Well, we appreciate it. Amber, take care.
2: Awesome. Thank you guys. Bye.